Shows, the show that will always and forever aid and abet abortion. I'm Liz Winstead, and I'm joined by my co-host, Moji Alawodeel. Hello, aiders and abettors alike. Big show today. If you keep thinking pregnancy criminalization is something that only happens in other countries or that it's a future American dystopia, think again. Our colleagues at Pregnancy Justice have dropped a study on the prosecution of pregnancy outcomes in the U.S., and Liz and I will go over some of the terrifying stats. And we'll talk about legit anti-abortion criminals and look at some baby steps the justice system is taking as they finally start to realize that trespassing and shouting unsolicited opinions at patients through a bullhorn is not considered counseling. Plus, we're joined by Elizabeth Estrada from the National Latina Institute for Reproductive Justice to talk about the abortion access disparities in Latina communities. And as always, a roundup of this week's abortion headlines. But first, I have to tell you about the amazing panel I did this week. Talk about this all-star panel you were on, Moji. Oh my gosh, it was me journalizing with the journalists. It was Erin Carmon, Rebecca Traster, and Joan Walsh, and moi. And we talked for 20 minutes. We were talking about uh, abortion and how Democrats are using it to win elections. Um, and Rebecca Traster brought up this incredible point that because Roe was just kind of decided and then we've had Roe and so antis have been able to run against abortion for so long that there's no playbook for running for abortion and that basically we're making it up as we go along. We're also winning. So that's a win. Well, I mean, they're making it up as they go along because they're not talking to any of us and never have, you know, and I think that's really the amount of clawing and kicking and screaming we have had to do to try to get the ear of the Democratic Party to say abortion's popular, y'all. Like whether you believe it or not, it is. It just shows patriarchy so profound. Um, it also shows that the Bush and stigma is really, really real. And politicians are like, I'm not sure if I want to touch this at all, even though we have six, what do we have? Six um, ballot initiatives and a bunch of uh, elections that say it is extremely popular and that voters do, in fact, care. I mean, and I'm just going to say that I think that the work that we're doing and other amazing advocacy groups is really making a difference because it's allowing the public to come out and say, this is what we want from you. We want you to vote for abortion. We want you to advocate for abortion, expand abortion, because that's what needs to happen. Politicians don't dictate it. The people tell the politicians, and especially on an issue that's been so closed off and divisive for so many years, because we haven't had the conversations, it's on us to do it. So good for you, Moji. Also, I feel like just good to go back to what I think that in this time, a lot more individual people or individual activists are saying, fuck it, I'll do it. And that's exciting to see. Yeah. I mean, just regular folks. Yeah, yeah, just regular folks, just regular small orgs being like, fuck it, I'll do it and getting it done. And so anyway, it was an exciting panel. I was with cool people. I felt very cool. I mean, all of those people are like dope ass abortion writers, abortion journalists. They write a lot about the Constitution. They know all about what they're great. So you were in good company. And I can't think of anyone better to be on that panel. Should we kick it over to Alyssa for a steaming pile of news? Oh, hell yeah. Let's do it. Hey, friends. Welcome back. How are you? I'm great. How you doing? You know, we're good. We're good. We're doing it. Well, welcome back. It's your steaming news dump of all the abortion news, which never struggles to stay regular. Let's start out with a clean wipe, shall we? In July, the FDA approved the first over-the-counter birth control pill. And now states like New Jersey are getting ready to offer the pill without a prescription as soon as early next year. 
Congratulations, New Jersey menstruators. Soon, you'll be able to send your boyfriend to get tampons, a hoagie, and birth control in the same trip. Now that's called equality. Next up in creepy man inserting himself into places he shouldn't be news, an anti-abortion crackpot who has dubbed himself a pro-life Spider-Man was arrested after scaling a building in Chicago to fundraise for an anti-abortion organization. No safety gear, no costume, not a single superpower. Just a sad man raw-dogging a skyscraper for Sky Daddy. And his big mic drop on the libs when he reached the top? He popped open a can of woke-free, ultra-right beer, man. Now let's be honest, nothing says you've been owned like cracking open a lukewarm can of fascist piss after a long day of exercising for oppression. And finally, over on the shit end of the stick, a woman is suing a New York hospital after being denied a specific treatment for her debilitating headaches. The reason? The drug could possibly cause a miscarriage, and she is, quote, of childbearing age. Um, Let's back up here a second. She's not pregnant. And she told the doctor she wasn't planning on getting pregnant. But this quack decides that the mere fact that she could get pregnant meant that he was going to deny her care. I guess showing more concern for some fantasy fetus than the actual living human right in front of him means life begins at conceptual. That's been your steaming news dump. Back to you. I like life begins at conceptual. That actually exactly sums up that story in my head. I think that sums up all of their fantasy bullshit. Every fucking, <laughs> every ban, every reason they hate abortion is some concept, whether it's biblically conceptual, like some concept of science, some thing that could possibly happen in the future. But what if you get pregnant? <laughs> what if you can get pregnant? What if you get pregnant? Yeah. Oh my God, Alyssa. Good. Excellent. And we are going to actually be talking to the woman who's bringing that lawsuit next week. So that will be exciting. Cannot wait. Her story has been rattling around in my head for a week. Yeah, it's going to be cool. I cannot wait either. Alyssa, thanks for the dump. Smells like roses. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Alyssa. Now we are going to get to the stories we wanted to go deeper on this week. Mo, do you want to kick it off? Oh, hell yeah. So People talk about being criminalized for pregnancy like it's some terrible atrocity that happens in other countries, but that has been a reality here in the U.S. Here's a clip from Dr. Michelle Goodwin talking about some of the cases she uncovered while researching for her book, Policing the Womb. Coming across cases, for example, of women being threatened with arrest for refusing C-section, women being uh, civilly incarcerated uh, because they disclosed having a prior uh, medical dependency on prescription medications, um, the use of laws to prohibit pregnant persons at end of life from being able to make their own decisions with regard to their bodies. Um, individuals arrested for things like falling down steps while pregnant. These made up a broad sphere of concerns that extended beyond abortion that really weren't being taken up in mainstream media. That sounds horrifying. The reproductive justice organization Pregnancy Justice recently released a comprehensive report that said that approximately 1,400 pregnant people have been prosecuted in the U.S. between 2006 and 2022. And if you can count, that means it happened during Roe and up until the Dobbs decision. That wasn't their first report, Liz. It's actually pretty astounding. It was not their first report. In fact, the criminalization piece of this 
has tripled. Back in 2013, they did a similar report and it detailed about 413 cases of of criminalization over three decades between 1973 and 2005. This new report picked it up where they last left off. And so we are really looking at just inordinate amount of criminalization for pregnancies. And it's wild because when you look at the report, 75% of these prosecutions happened in just five states, just five. And those states are Alabama, South Carolina, Oklahoma, Mississippi, and Tennessee. And these are states that have also, since the Dobbs decision, banned or severely restricted abortion access. Can I also just say too, there's states that they were the first ones to outright ban it, but all of these states also not just ban abortion, but had some of the scariest like proposed laws that, thank God, cooler heads prevailed. Remember, South Carolina wanted to have a law where you could be armed, protect your fetus. So if somebody threatened abortion, you could hold them hostage at gunpoint. So they didn't. This was during Roe. This was during Roe or <laughs> Oklahoma several times tried to pass laws that gave the death penalty for people who had abortions. Tennessee has has the similar thing where you've seen people who were had to stand and bleed in parking lots in order to access abortion and still couldn't and had to travel while miscarriaging. Tennessee had this particular law that was in effect, I think, from 2014 to 2016 that was like specifically targeting people for whatever, misbehaving, that's a quote I'm saying, during pregnancy that they had to sunset because it was so terrible. They're just extra in their hatred. <laughs> but also not to give every other states a pass, right? Like we we talk about our like so-called safe haven states like New York, California, and Illinois. And New York had 14, California had eight, and Illinois had six. And that is uh, too many, I say, too many. Way too many. And You know, 11 of these states had some form of fetal personhood laws that immediately, you know, you and again, we say it all the time. But when you start having fetal personhood, that simply means you are stripping rights of the person who is pregnant every single time. And so when you start having these fetal personhood laws, that means that you can bring up charges of child abuse, child neglect, child endangerment of the fetus. And it's terrifying. It is terrifying. And a large majority of these charges are linked with drug use, right? This is about pregnant people who use marijuana or cocaine or methamphetamines mostly, but also some of the charges are linked to like suspicion of suicide, suspicion of self-harm, or or using substances that are considered legal, like nicotine or alcohol or prescription drugs, sometimes prescribed by the person's doctor who knew they were pregnant. Right. The scariest to me, and again, this was during Roe in Alabama, a person was shot by another person while pregnant, and they were charged because the jury had decided they had initiated the fight. And, you know, what happens then too, and this part feels really scary to me, you're like, how are people prosecuted at this rate? Somebody must have turned them in, right? Well, one of the most startling things that came out of this survey for me was that in almost half of the U.S. states, Healthcare providers and social workers are required to report pregnant people who they perceive to be endangering their pregnancies to law enforcement. And, you know, we already have this terrifying surveillance state and uh, it's disproportionate with people who are marginalized. 
And that to not be able to go to a hospital as a safe haven to actually give your full medical history so that you could get full medical care and to have that used against you is terrifying. And we're going to be talking about that more with our guests, especially when it comes to immigrant communities. This is terrifying. It really is. And this is similar to how abortion laws work in that basically the things that medical organizations say is are healthiest for people who need medical help are kind of countered by what the legislature decides. So most medical organizations say, no, we actually in no way support criminalization of pregnant people or postpartum people. We know that when you require doctors to be mandated reporters for people, what happens is either people avoid medical care, like you just said, or they don't trust medical care at all. It's not helpful. And it's not best practices, basically. It's not right. best practices. No. And this isn't shocking, but it needs to be said. The poor people are, they are wildly overrepresented in, in being prosecuted. 85% of the people indicated in the study that they could not afford legal representation. The vast majority were poor white women, although poor black women were also disproportionately represented. And it is something that we don't talk about enough. And we don't talk about it enough because People who are disproportionately poor, if you can't afford legal representation, you certainly can't afford to find somebody to tell your story to, right? So people are just left in the shadows and in the margins, and they're never advocated for. And also, we can think just about the biases in places like healthcare. If you were poor, if you were Black, you know, rich white women can just float around doing whatever they want. But if you were poor and you were Black, there is almost a suspicion that you're doing something wrong. And it's really distressing. And this is a trend that is only going to get worse. Mm -hmm. And the irony of this, of course, is that the real purpose of violence and the anti-abortion movement have been just skirting the law for decades. And this week, we saw a little bit of a sea change on that front, right? Liz, will you tell us about it? We saw a little bit of progress. I don't want to, you know, I hate, I hate being, you know, the bummer and progress is being made in an, in an area that we almost never see justice or even intervention in, which is the sidewalk harassment that happens outside of most clinics. So often, Law enforcement are sympathetic to the anti-abortion movement and in many cases are deeply embedded in that movement. So it has been super hard to prosecute the violence outside of the clinics because everybody is in bed with everybody else. So when you look at the harassment and the trespassing that happens in front of these clinics, it's just escalated. But this week, we saw three different levels of accountability, which is a small step, but not an insignificant one, I got to say. No, it isn't. Actually, I was reading about Wichita in Kansas, where a Catholic diocese in Wichita had requested and was granted a permit. And this permit would completely block the only entrance to the clinic in Wichita. It would block the whole street. Like they were going to have a block party. But it would block the entrance. So people could not get to their clinic appointments if there were any. But they were definitely going to leave the opening to a, a fake clinic across the street wide open to just redirect people to. But what, what's wild to me is they got this permit in the spring and the clinic did not even know about it until a month ago. That's four months of a city permit. And you, no one who would be affected by this permit had any idea. And so they finally went to the city and they were like, can we stop this? Can we not have this permit for our business, our place of business to be blocked? And they heard nothing from the city at all. So finally, they had to go to a judge and they got a temporary restraining order until a proper hearing can be heard. But like, why is the city not helping them? And the archdiocese has been doing this for like six years running, just having their 40 days for life party out in front of that clinic. And finally, they got a judge who was like, you know, you just can't do that. 
and somebody needs to do an assessment of where somebody wants to block off a street to see if that's going to work for the people in that community. It's really wild. Uh, And that takes us over to Greenville, which we have a personal relationship to. They have one independent clinic in Greenville, South Carolina, and that clinic has been barraged with anti-abortion extremism. And the clinic has a fence around the clinic and there's a driveway that goes in and then there's fences at the top of a hill and the hill's very very steep. And so what anti-abortion extremists do at this clinic is they put up ladders that overlook the clinic and then they bring up bullhorns and they scream at the patients in the parking lot and that the workers can hear it too. And you can hear it in the clinic, just horrible names and screaming at them and proselytizing. And they call it counseling or (laughs) preaching, I guess. And so there's three clinics in the whole state. There's two Planned Parenthoods, one in Columbia, one in Charleston. And then there's this Indy in Greenville. And the Greenville County Sheriff was contacted by us because we went down there because the clinic and some activists down there said there's going to be a national gathering of anti-abortion extremists and we need some backup to help escort patients and to see if we can prevent them from putting up their ladders in front of the fence. We contacted this Greenville County Sheriff and the FBI contacted them and told them what was happening And so the sheriff was like, I don't know what's going on here, but both sides are mad at me because no one's really breaking the law. It's like, I don't know if people aren't really breaking the law when you have hundreds of people screaming with a bullhorn, there's noise ordinances, there's a lot of things happening, right? So they never did anything while we went down to help them. I just want to say if someone put a ladder against my home and started yelling at me, I would feel like a law was broken. We had people there trying to fend off the ladders and they were assaulting members of abortion access front team, um, members of our activist um, cohort. They were screaming at them, calling them names. They were elbowing them in the throat and the neck and people were fighting back to keep those ladders off. And we have video that we shot of us trying to push back on the ladders, which we put on TikTok, which was cited in this article of the sheriff saying, oh, we looked at this and maybe it seems like we need to do some de-escalation. But the oddest thing was, he was like, for some reason, other cities like Columbia and Charleston don't have the problems we have. We don't know why. And the reason, sir, that we told you and gave you a dossier on, is a man named Matt Brock, who is a Operation Save America leader who is based in Charleston. He is a minister. You know, I don't know how some of these people just become preachers, but they do. It's like they just decide they're going to. Yeah. He was self-described, suffers from um, profound PTSD from being a veteran of the Iraq-Afghanistan war. And he is on a ladder every day, screaming there. So when this group of national organizations, Operation Save America and other organizations came, he he helped house them. He found a host church. He was leading the charge. So if dude Sheriff uh, Hobart Lewis had listened to us to look at the dossier on Matt Brock 
and on Operation Save America. He can't feign ignorance. And he was trying to feign ignorance. So what they've done is said that, you know, you can't block the driveway. They're going to reassess the ladder situation. Um, but they are going to be more active in South Carolina to make sure that people can at least access the driveway at the clinic without being stampeded by these anti-abortion extremists and their bullhorns, which is really good. And I want to say that the next story is upholding some bad dudes in Tennessee, Mount Juliet, Tennessee, which is a suburb of Nashville. 11 anti-abortion extremists invaded a clinic, which is a violation of the Federal Access to Clinic Entrances Act. Also known as the FACE Act. And they were brought up on federal charges in large part due to information that Abortion Access Front had filmed them doing it, had pulled from the internet and turned over to the feds, right? And they were like, it's all right to do this. And the feds were like, no, I don't think so. You're up on these charges. And then they tried to say, Moji, this is wild, that the charges should be dropped because since Roe v. Wade is overturned, that they should no longer be brought up on federal charges because Roe isn't the law of the land. It's like. So the clinics all disappeared. Is that their argument? It's really unclear. The good news is <laughs> a judge was like, nope, you're going to be tried on these charges. And several of the people who were assaulting our team are also part of this 11 people that were arrested on federal charges. Some of them arrested on federal charges in Michigan. And one of them was arrested on the same federal charge in Washington, D.C. So some of them have multiple counts against them. And for those of you that have never heard of the FACE Act, it is a federal offense. It comes with a penalty with each violation of 11 years in prison and $100,000 in fines. And so I feel like upholding that FACE Act is really good news in Tennessee, that a Tennessee court was like, don't try to clown us. This is serious. They got by with so much clowning in the past. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They just got real comfortable with the clowning, yeah. you know? Yeah. But I do think we're getting a pass right now on a judge saying, fuck you, the FACE Act is still real. Oh, absolutely. Because there are um, politicians in Washington in both the Senate and in the House who are proposing laws that basically say the same thing. Let's get rid of the FACE Act because Roe is gone. And we need to like get up and stand up and be loud about this to let people know that they're doing it. Because right now, there's been an eerie silence on this sort of stealth push to repeal the FACE Act. This is back to Democrats being real quiet about things that they don't feel like talking about. Well, they might not know. You know, they can shove this kind of stuff into other bills. And if people aren't reading the bills, this is one of those things that could be shoved in. And then all of a sudden, like part of a negotiation, like, okay, we'll we'll put that in if you give us this kind of thing. And we have to be steadfast on what that means, right? It goes back to kind of what you were talking about in your panel discussion this week, which is you have to be proactively defending abortion. Yes. It's not enough to just say, oh, I care. Yep. And just big shout out to um, our co-conspirator, Kat Green, over at Endora Tech, who is doing a lot of research and following this anti-abortion strategy of trying to repeal the FACE Act and also 100% responsible for 
culling information and pulling reports and doing all of this research, making sure that justice comes to these people. So shout out to Kat Green at Endora. Check out endora.tech and see what they are up to. They are doing some good work. I feel like we got to like end on a high note with with our with our stories. Yeah, I'm going to say we did too. As always, these stories will be in the show notes. And you can find the best, most up-to-the-minute resources on accessing abortion care and funding for your care on our website, aafront.org. Our Charlie chatbot on the bottom right will walk anyone anywhere in the country through their options and resources for abortion. I love it. So exciting. Go Charlie Chatbot. Well, are you ready for our guest today? I'm so excited about our guest today. She serves as the New York Field and Advocacy Manager at the National Latina Institute for Reproductive Justice, where she works to raise the voices of Latina in New York and to transform the systems and narratives that will reclaim our bodies and our lives. Please welcome Elizabeth Estrada. Hi, Elizabeth. Thank you for joining us. Hey, Elizabeth. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. So you did an extensive research study with the National Partnership for Women and Families with some huge takeaways. One that really struck us is that 6.7 million Latine people live in states with total abortion bans. And also another thing that really stood out to me is that when we talk about the Latine community, people often talk about it as a monolith when in fact it bears repeating often that there are dozens of countries and many races, each with their own cultural vocabularies. And so when we hear about it, especially when talking about abortion specifically, people use terms like Latin Americans are conservative or anti-abortion, but that seems really reductive. So just to go back to your research, you broke down a lot of these populations. Can you summarize for us what you found? Well, um, thanks so much for asking me. And again, once again, for having me on. Um, I agree, Moji. A lot of the times Latinas and Black folks are considered to be a monolith that we oftentimes uh, vote in similar ways or have these ideas that we are conservative. But much like the rest of the United States, we overwhelmingly support access to abortion and ultimately believe that those decisions should be made through the pregnant person and without interference from politicians that have no business being in our, you know, patient rooms or in our uteruses. And, you know, we are diverse in culture as we are in race. There are Black Latinas, there are white Latinas, and across the states, like you mentioned, across the 26 states, we live most predominantly in the 26 states that have already banned abortion or soon to likely ban abortion. Those are places like Arizona, like California, like Texas, like Florida, and we're seeing such huge and oppressive measures to severely restrict or completely ban at the Latina Institute, we partnered with the National Partnership for Women and Families on this report and continue to see these impacts fall most hard on Latinas who already face huge gaps in preventative care. So we already aren't accessing the care that we need to prevent pregnancy, like sex education, like birth control, uh, like prenatal care when you um, do decide to be a parent. And in places like Florida and Texas, you're seeing the most restrictions. And I mentioned those two states because that's where the Latina Institute has actual people on the ground. Um, some of my strongest, you know, relationships and allies and, and mentors are in the Rio Grande Valley in Texas, in Houston, and in Miami, Florida. 
And you're seeing political leaders like DeSantis and Abbott severely restricting our access to not only abortion, but to birth control, to comprehensive sex ed. And those are all things that can help us make better decisions about if and when we wish to become parents. And I think even dispelling the myth even further is that, you know, amazing organizations in all those states you mentioned, like South Texans for Reproductive Justice and Color in Colorado, are leading on on fighting back on these abortion bans, you know, suing the state of Texas or in the in the case of Calor, beating back a 20 week ban and passing the RHA, which is the Reproductive Health Act of Colorado, and now fighting against abortion reversal quackery. It is vital that we really follow the leadership um, in these movements. And I'd love for, to just let people know like where you have seen the most targeted bans on folks who are from the Latina community, because we know that from your study that those folks are particularly targeted by anti-abortion information. Yes. I'm so glad that you mentioned South Texans for Reproductive Justice because they are such a strong uh, partner of ours in the Rio Grande Valley. I feel really so honored. They were recently at our event in South Texas in McAllen on Saturday, sharing information, sharing resources with our community. And, you know, we love partnering with them. Our communities, the Latin community, non-English speaking community, immigrant communities are often targeted via misinformation, you know, because English is not our first language. So if it is difficult for those who speak English in the United States to navigate the healthcare industry, even us who have resources and the education that we need to really navigate these tough areas, find it hard to advocate for the needs that we or often find that we're not believed by our doctors, it, it, it really is another barrier when you don't know the language. And it also means that you know, some cultural practices like seeking an auntie or a family member's advice on where to go get care is is kind of um, not as reliable as you would if you had the information in your you know native tongue. So often we're relying on places like or we're getting targeted on places like Facebook which we know has been a um, source of mis and disinformation during, you know, election times. But it also means that we're getting, you know, memes or certain publications on these platforms like WhatsApp, Facebook, all owned by Meta that are misinforming our community. And then your auntie might just, you know, trying to help you out, send you something and say, oh, you need help. Well, here's um, some information from a crisis pregnancy center, which we all know are perpetrators of those lies, often, you know, kind of posing as real healthcare providers when they really are not and are just there to discourage you from accessing abortion. There's also part of that that I thought was fascinating when reading the report that when, especially because it's, it's a new culture for people, just people's cultural expectations are different. There was an example of, I think, a, a, a Brazilian immigrant who was like, oh, I'm getting an illegal abortion. And it's like, no, actually here it's not all, you know, there there are other options, but just the way that these really sort of feed the level of misinformation that people will perceive as fact, because it is a reality in a different place. 
It is. And we're also bringing the context of our home countries, you know, where cert- where abortion is limited in certain places. You know, we're seeing a lot of decriminalization advances in places like Mexico, but we're also hearing on the ground how that doesn't necessarily translate into access. And that is also what you hear from a lot of reproductive justice organizations that Roe was the floor because it, it didn't mean that a right on paper translated to access to that right. But it also puts us in a place where we're having to kind of like, for one, we're surprised here, even in New York, when Roe fell, that folks here in New York thought that it was already illegal. Yep. And so we're hearing this misunderstanding of the rights that we have in in a quote unquote access state like New York, and people are still being misinformed or still not knowing their full rights or where to access abortion, whether that be because stigma in their own families and home or stigma on billboards. I live in in the Bronx and you see anti-abortion billboards all up and down Southern Boulevard. And that is right by a local independent clinic. And so if you have that in your community, and I always talk about how our first, you know, barrier to access comes in your home, because if you share with a loved one that you live with, that you need abortion care, and they, you know, um, bombard you with stigma, religious stigma against abortion, then that ends up being your first, you know, kind of barrier. And then you have to go beyond that. And if if you're a young person and your world is your four walls of your apartment, you know, then that's going to be an additional barrier. And then if you go out and you see these anti-abortion centers that pose as real clinics, it just continues to live in our communities and target us because we don't speak English, because we're a vulnerable population. I'm so glad that you mentioned that because I think so often well-meaning people toss around haven state and safe state and those monikers, they don't apply to marginalized communities for the for all of the reasons that you said. You know, there's 146 of these fake clinics in the state of New York, right? And so if somebody's looking and, you know, there's a language barrier and you think somebody's going to give you compassionate care and it looks just like a place that would provide medical care and the pamphlets look like pamphlets and they're in Spanish language, you're handed propaganda from somebody who is cosplaying as somebody being helpful. And that is really harmful for vulnerable people. And then, you know, we just saw this incredible story last week about the, you know, cannibal cannibalization of public hospitals by Catholic hospitals, right? And so Catholic community and Catholic hospitals taking over. There's a lot of healthcare disparity in states that are, um, air quoting everywhere, safe, <laughs> That's right. That And, you know, the majority of folks that are under-resourced are going to Catholic charity hospitals. I remember growing up in the South in Atlanta where, you know, my parents and I would go to immigration clinics, meaning that you would go and they, these uh, Catholic charities would help you fill out your immigration documentation so you could apply for citizenship or your green card. And then also they would have health clinics there and they were all Catholic funded. And much like, you know, in low resource communities, for example, here in the Bronx, we have a a hospital, a public hospital, St. Barnabas, uh, who does provide abortion care. But if depending on who you ask at the front desk or a person who has an ideological difference against abortion, you may not ever know. 
And so these Catholic hospitals are misinformed or part of the misinformation campaign because of their own ideals around the issue, which is kind of against the oath that providers take to provide sensitive care with compassion. Yeah, we know. And and it's funny because you say these things and, and these are true for all Americans, right? These are true for all people in America. And it's just doubly so for people who are in under-resourced, low English or or non-English speaking populations or immigrant populations. And we know, again, this heightened surveillance on anti-immigrant policies are profoundly harmful to immigrant communities. But can you talk about how these policies are particularly harmful for someone trying, not just, you know, in the in the example of the Bronx you gave, but in the country trying to find and fund their abortion care? Well, you know, right now, New York is seeing an influx of immigrants, migrants to um, New York City, a state that is called a haven state for asylum speakers and refugees. And um, if you apply for citizenship or a green card, right now, newly arrived immigrants have a five-year bar on access to public benefits. Five years is a matter of life and death. Um, so if you're not able to access the healthcare that you need to either prevent any kind of medical issue or to access the abortion care that you need, that means that you are then on a journey or a spiral into deeper poverty. And ultimately, if you don't want to be pregnant, you shouldn't have to be. And so it's just very easy to be able to differentiate between wanting to be pregnant, not wanting to be pregnant, being able to access health care, including abortion and not being able to. And the impacts of that means that our life changes drastically or folks. And this is, you know, not an exaggeration. People ultimately die if they don't receive the care. Like I was saying, we were in, in the Rio Grande Valley in Texas on Saturday, and we had an altar honoring the people, the activists that work with us, who have died in, in their journey to fight for healthcare access for the Latin community. But like you said, Moji, it's not just the Latin community. It's every under-resourced or marginalized community who doesn't have access to the money they need to pay for health care, who doesn't know necessarily about the abortion funds that exist in every state and city across the United States. And it's about the stigma that we experience in our families and in the circles that we live. And that's what Latina Institute aims to do is break the misinformation, educate our communities with love and compassion, and shift our culture to that of compassion and empathy and respect for people's individual decisions about their bodies. And Elizabeth, that's going to dovetail nicely into talking about the HEAL Act. We've laid out so many barriers. And I feel like sometimes as we talk weekly, <laughs> We're just like Debbie Downer day in and day out. But the HEAL Act is something that you've worked really hard on crafting. I wish you would tell people a little bit about what it is, what HEAL stands for, and how it could end some of these really inhumane barriers for folks. Yes. Thanks so much, Liz, for bringing this up. We just had our HEAL Week of Action um, a couple of weeks ago where we delivered a, a petition, thousands of signatures to um, Senator Chuck Schumer. The HEAL for Immigrant Families Act aims to lift the five-year bar on access to, to healthcare for newly arrived immigrants. It expands access to the ACA and provides care or provides access to care that people need to get 
you know, screenings, get preventative care, get prenatal care, get access to abortion, regardless of immigration status. And now that is a federal policy. And I know that we're based in New York. So I also want to shout out the Reproductive Freedom and Equity Fund here in New York that is led by Assemblymember Jessica Gonzalez Rojas, which would help folks get the care that they need and also help clinics help clinics and providers and funds, those providing practical support, those funding abortions. We know that there was a huge influx of support for abortion funds in the state for New York Abortion Access Fund and for Bridget Alliance, but that has really died down. And we need folks and we need the state to really answer this call. If New York is to really be a haven state and access state, we need to provide funding and care for providers. We need to beef up security because you and I both know that um, anti-abortion activists during their 40 days to life ramp up harassment outside clinics when people are just trying to access care. So it's uh, not a one lane solution. It's many aspects. And this show is really providing a space for us to shift culture and talk and advocate for the policies we need. That's the place we're trying to be. So where do you think we need to be fighting the hardest, but also where is there hope that you see? Bring the joy, Elizabeth, no pressure. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, things are bad, but I think, you know, I'm reminded often of Marion Kaba's hope is a discipline quote, because I think that when we're together like this, we are able to fortify each other's spirit, even in the face of such darkness and evil. And I think that this shifts culture. I think oftentimes we get really muddled in policy And policy wins are great, you know, they're really needed, and they don't always translate to culture shift. And so we need media, we need journalists to do better with reporting, and we need for the the stories of the human story of abortion access to be diverse. We need for our culture to be more accepting and more open and to, you know, uh, unbashedly say the word abortion. I often lean on Renee Bracey Sherman and her storytellers. And I think that, you know, when I first shared my abortion story, I was so scared and I thought people were going to judge me. And of course they did. But once I did, I felt so empowered. And through my story and through bearing witness to my situation, others shared theirs. And I think that can be really liberating. And so any platform where folks can share their story in a supportive environment Um, is going to be able to change the hearts and minds of your viewers and those listening and from across the nation. I think also global solidarity. As a Latina, we are deeply connected to La Marea Verde, the, the green wave, which is a global feminist fight for the decriminalization of abortion. And I think that global feminist solidarity is so needed and it just strengthens me. It makes me feel Like I can do this even when I feel really, really down. Elizabeth, I really love that answer. Thank you. That's such a good answer. I feel hopeful. (laughs) I feel really hopeful now. (laughs) Elizabeth, thank you so much. Tell people where they can find you online and we'll put all the links to this stuff in our show notes. Well, on Instagram, we're at Latina Institute. We're on TikTok, Facebook, Twitter. We're trying to hold on to Twitter. Um, <laughs> and so you can see us on all the uh, the social media platforms at Latina Institute. Thank you so much. Please come back and see us. Thank you. Thanks, Liz. Thanks, Moji. Thank you, Elizabeth, for joining us today. Please check out the work of the National Latina Institute for Reproductive Justice. 
at latinainstitute.org. And you can find the petition to support the HEAL Act in our show notes. And now, the party game that's faster than Monopoly and more fun than Taboo, Six Degrees of Abortion. And this is when I take a story from the news and Liz has six chances to link it to abortion. Let's see if I can stump her this week. All right, Liz, it's been a week. And I thought I was just going to take it easy on you this week. So uh, everyone's favorite 90s femme fatale, she might have been 2000s, Sharon Stone is uh, hasn't been acting recently. She's been painting. She's been doing some some painting stuff. Uh, apparently, she's really good at it because she's going to have a show in Connecticut in a few days. And so I would like you to, in six steps or less, link Sharon Stone to abortion. Okay. Um, and I'm going to link it back to me. So fuck you. I'm doing it. Per use. <laughs> Sharon Stone starred, of course, in Fatal Attraction with co-star Anne Archer. Ann Archer was best friends with my acting coach in LA, Lynette Katsalas. And Lynette Katsalas was my acting coach and I run abortion access front. So there, how's that? I'll take it. Thank you. I love a, I love a six degrees classic. You know what I mean? That was just like a good solid classic. I know we had a moratorium where I couldn't bring it back to me. <laughs> no, that one's good. I feel like uh, this is a good one for that. Well done you. <laughs> Thank you. I know. You know, the weird part was unbeknownst to me in my acting class in LA, my acting teacher was a profoundly high up Scientology person. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah, I know. It was got kind of weird and like it was very bizarre. And so you didn't know like who was part of Scientology and who wasn't. And then I finally was just like, I'm out of here. This is like not for me. But you know, I survived and I'm not a Scientologist. And she was a great acting coach. So win for you. I'm winning. Anyway, Liz, we cannot do our important work here at FBK without the generosity of our incredible fake sponsors. Will you tell our listeners who's keeping the lights on this week? This week's sponsor knows how to get your young ones on the path to self-righteousness by putting the fun and fundamentalism with Polly Pocket's Fake Clinic Adventure. With Polly's Fake Clinic Adventure, your child can play fake doctor just like a real fake doctor at a real fake clinic. That's right. With this limited edition adventure, your kiddo and fake doctor Polly will have hours of fun running this little pocket-sized fake clinic. They can perform itty-bitty ultrasounds and trick many patients into going through weeks of their trademark fake Dr. Polly pregnancy counseling. The only thing big is the satisfaction of shaming fake patients and denying them abortions. The Polly Pocket Fake Clinic Adventure accessories include matching doctor coats, tiny Bibles, and even a single teeny tiny pack of diapers so your child's imagination can run wild. Hold on to your hats, folks, because here's the best part. Order now and I'll throw in the Polly Pocket Clinic Protester Expansion Pack for free. Each expansion pack contains miniature signs of giant fetal remains, a wee little bullhorn, and a book of anti-abortion slogans, making sure your kid's first taste of pro-life slut-shaming is fun and authentic. So what are you waiting for? Get your Polly Pockets Fake Clinic Adventure toy today. Wow. That's just like, that's like sort of meta 
isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a double it's fake. A double fake. It's a double yeah, fake. Yeah, sounds like a shitty joy. <laughs> it's uh, nothing I'm getting for anybody this holiday. But thanks, sponsor. <laughs> That's the show. That is the end of the show. What a great show it was. Thank you, Elizabeth Estrada, for joining us on this week's episode. You can follow the work of the National Latino Institute for Reproductive Justice in the links in our show notes. And thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, please like, subscribe, give us some love with a five-star rating, and stay connected with us on social media at Abortion Front. Let's make a difference and have some fun doing it. Looking for where you might fit in to do some abortion activism? We've got a five-part activist training series, Operation Save Abortion, at operationsaveabortion.com. And visit our super cool activist calendar, which is full of local and national actions and educational opportunities. Abortion funds across the country are looking for new volunteers. On the activist calendar, we've got needs from Nebraska, Virginia, Texas, Minnesota, and more. Sign up today. Get on it, please. Next week is a full dark week, but we're going to be doing a very special mini episode midweek with Tara Rule, the woman who is suing that New York hospital for denying her life-saving medication. You don't want to miss it. Oh my God, Liz, I'm so excited to talk to them. Also, join our Patreon. You'll support great content and get cool FBK merch and experiences. All pledges support this pod and all of our activism at Abortion Access Front. Pledge at patreon.com slash feminist buzzkills. FBK is edited by Remy de Tournay and is produced by Abortion Access Front. And finally, we leave you with the Daily Wire host, Michael Knowles. I'll apologize in advance for him showing his whole ass by telling us what he thinks about Planned Parenthood's secret satanic cash cow. Planned Parenthood sells evil. That's what they do. They don't, they're not going to all of a sudden shift their business model to baking pies for widows, okay? They're not all of a sudden going to shift their business model to running orphanages, okay? They sell evil. So they're going to make their money by murdering babies. They're going to make their money by trans and confused teenagers. They're going to make, who knows what, they're probably going to make their money by holding big worship, worship sessions to Moloch. Feminist Buzzkills, the podcast from Abortion Access Front. New episodes drop Friday. When BS is popping, we pop off. And if you want to support our podcast and all the work of Abortion Access Front, like, subscribe, and join our Patreon at patreon.com slash feminist buzzkills.